Thank you, brother, and thank you, sister. I almost was just thinking, we're, we're getting, I was thinking two thoughts. We're getting two sermons for one today, or Lauren, just stay up and keep preaching, and Austin. I'm so good. That's, that's, that's a, a picture, one of many, of the body, of, of the church being the church, of the body being equipped to do the work of the ministry. Um, so beautiful, and I'm just coming up as one of you, continuing to do my part and, and um, exercise my gift to equip you all. So, man, that is so exciting. And it is in line. It's exactly in line by God's providence with um, the third in, uh, sermon in this short three-part series that is a focus on mission. Our life together as a people made such by the blood of Jesus Christ, shed for us through no good of our own because of his grace. And it makes us a people um, by his grace. And then as a people, we go out on mission together. So that's really the focus of today is this mission um, and I've just titled the sermon Made for More. And, you know, I started it out literally in the first couple lines here in my notes with the word bored. And, the, and Austin and I didn't talk about this. And so just I think that's one of the themes that God has for us today is so many of us are bored. Let me give you a little, a little illustration of what I'm talking about. My sister and I were watching a movie in the cinema years ago. And it was before the movie started, the previews, and they were just sensational. I mean, sensational kind of in a bad way and sort of the literal in sort of the literal um, meaning of the word, they were overwhelming with how uh, just how much they were, how loud they were, how graphic, how intense. I was overwhelmed almost to the point of stupefaction uh, by the end of the seven or eight or ten minutes after watching those previews. The movie hadn't even started yet, and I was shell-shocked. And she just turned to me. There was a silence, you know, the silence between the previews and then when the movie starts, the, the feature film begins, and she just turned and said quietly, our society is absolutely famished. We are starving. We are feeding ourselves with all these, with the equivalent of Twinkies and pretzels and whatever else you can think that's an empty calorie, when what we ought to be feeding on is something that satisfies. And so we are just cramming ourselves full of things, idle factories, like Calvin said, just, am I made for this? Am I made for this? Maybe I can find my significance here, in this person, in this bit of work, in this holiday, in this thing that I'm going to go buy to make myself feel better, and on and on and on and on. We are starving. We are starving. We are famished people. And we're also, I would add to what she said, a bored people. We are bored because we don't understand what Paul does here in this text, that we because of Christ, have been brought into the mission that we were made for. And so Paul talks about that here. We are made for more. Um, I have a friend who I met with recently, and he was just talking about how he's, he's, he's a minister, but he was talking about how he's bored. And I, and, I, and I began to pick up on the fact that it seems like one of the reasons he is bored is because he is not, none of us do, but catching on to this idea that we are made for this grand mission that extends beyond this life into one that will never end. And what he's kind of focused on as a minister is a good thing. And oftentimes those are our idols, good things. He's focused on family kind of as his end. And he's bored. Because you, I want to say this, friend, family is good, it's from God. But if that is what you're living for and dying for, and pouring all of yourself into. If that is your primary thing, you are going to be bored because it's not the primary thing that is made to be the gas in your engine. It's not what you're made for. It's to be a corollary and a good corollary. It's to have its place. But he's made this, it's to be secondary. But, but he's made this thing his primary thing. And when we do that, there, there's other fallout. We're bored, but also what about, if that's what we're made for, what about people without a family? Um, 
they somehow have missed whatever it is that we've been called to, but no, we've all been made for this mission that Paul talks about that God has offered to bring us into in Jesus Christ. It, it is what we're made for, and Paul is just amped up. So we're made for more, point one, and um, you know, we're made for mission, sort of to bring up another, another film. Um, last night we were at a, having supper with some friends. We have a little supper club that we've started, and one of the guys just kind of out of nowhere said, I don't remember even how it came up, but he just said, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I watched Band of Brothers. It's an HBO special, uh, mini, that's a multiple series. He said, I, wa- I watched Band of Brothers again for the 10th time uh, recently, and it's a long, I mean, it's a commitment. It is, I watched it, we were in Scotland for four years, and I watched it with a dear friend of mine every, like, once a month, and we made our way through it in a year. But it's a, it's a, it's a commitment. It's a big miniseries, and uh, he's watched through it umpteen times. Why? Because there's something that speaks to the fact that we were made for mission. And war is an evil, but when men or men and women go to war and they're fighting for a cause that's bigger than they are, it gels them in a way that in a lot of ways makes us jealous in a sense, not to go fight because it's, it's a blessing they fought for us, but, but, but war, is, war is hell. But the way that it gels that team together, they're on mission for something bigger and we're made for that. We're made for mission. Um, and that's what Paul talks about here. And he talks about the fact that we, our mission is to, is that we are given the ministry of reconciliation, of proclaiming the good news. Of the, that's what gospel means. The good news of the fact that God has made a way for us, though we've ruptured everything, we've ruptured relationship with him through our sin and rebellion, and because of that, everything that we were given control of at creation has been broken. But God has made a way through his son, Jesus Christ, for us to be reconciled to him, for us to be reconciled to him. And that word reconciled really just means for enemies to be made friends. Um, and so we have this, uh, this message, this ministry, Paul says, of proclaiming the fact that God has done everything necessary for you born as an enemy to him because of your sin and my sin to be made a friend by the one who was his very own son and is his own son, who came and actually became an enemy to God on the cross, took your place so that you could be made a friend. And so this is, our, this is our message, this is our mission, and everything in life is to pour into this. And when it does, we find out this is what we are created for. Um, our mission, in a, in, a, in a sort of short way of putting it, is um, to invite others to say, look, we've, we've been invited back home. We've been estranged from God because of our sin, and we were made to be in relationship with him, and, um, and he's calling us back home. You know, there's no better way of putting this than the, the, the story, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. And if you haven't read The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, I would, I would just say get it. It's a little book. It's worth every single penny. It's worth every bit of your time. Um, but Jesus talks about how this message, he compacts it into a story. This message of the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus came to do is basically that a man had two sons and one of them just, he basically said, I wish you were dead, Father. Give me my inheritance now and I'm out of here. And he spent it on wild living. And he found himself far from home with empty pockets and nowhere to go. And he was basically eating pig slop. Um, Far from home and estranged. And Jesus basically says, that is our situation. We have wished our father who made us for himself dead. And we have gone and lived for ourselves. Um, 
And the turning point of the story is when he comes to his senses. At the, and usually it happens at the nadir, at the pit of our lives, when we don't have anything else we can grasp onto, any, any false god. And he comes to his senses and he says, man, even as a servant, I would have it better in my father's house. And so he goes home. And what Jesus says, the good news of the gospel is that the father doesn't make him do penance. He doesn't, quite the opposite, he, he runs out to meet his son. He runs out to meet him, which is in that culture extremely um, shameful for him to do. For, an, for a patriarch whose son has shamed him, and the whole society knows it. He said, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now, because you're not supposed to get the inheritance until your father dies, but he demands it now when his father's still alive. You're dead to me. He has shamed his father. Rather than his father kind of waiting for him to come back and, and eat crow, on the contrary, he runs out to meet him. And uh, it was shameful for the father to do, but he didn't care. And one of the things this implies is that he was scanning the horizon every day, hoping that his son might return. And when he saw the speck on the horizon, he hacked up his skirts, his robe, and he ran. He didn't care what anybody else thought. And he cut, his son starts the speech that he's rehearsed earlier in the parable, and the father cuts it off. He doesn't even let him finish, and he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him on his neck, and he cries on his neck, and then he says, start the party. Kill the fattened calf. My son has returned. He was what? Dead. That's what we are outside of Jesus Christ. But now he is alive. He was lost and now he's found. And so we have a father who is scanning the horizon waiting for us to return and more than that, who has sent his own son passed through the heavens, born poor in a feed trough to take our place in life and in death. There's a, uh, and Jesus is the one telling this story, and he's the one that came to get us. The Father sent him out of love, and he came at ultimate cost to himself, even death on a cross, to win us back. He became an enemy of his loving Father. He took our place so that we could become friends, so that we could be, what, reconciled. And this is our message. This is our message. There's a, there's a psalm, Psalm 19. It's a beautiful psalm. It, um, it's one of my favorites. It's the structure of it is beautiful. It's, a, it's dichotomized. It's in, two, it's in two parts. The first part is God and his glory and his beauty are spoken of in creation. Even though creation's been broken by our sin, it's still magnificent. I don't have to work at all to convince you guys of the fact that the mountains, the oceans, the sunsets, the trees, the changing of the seasons, and on and on and on. I could go the wildness of it, the beauty. Um, Creation speaks of God's beauty and his power. The stars, I love looking up at the stars because it right-sizes me. It reminds me that I am small, but somehow not insignificant because God has made us in his image and he loves us. And look at what he has given to get us back. So the, the creation speaks of the beauty and the majesty of God, but, and that's called general revelation by theologians, but there's something else, and the psalm transitions into this. There's a way that God has revealed himself specially in telling us, in this special revelation, what theologians call special revelation, not creation, God tells us things about himself that creation would never tell us, could never tell us. Creation tells us of his power, of his beauty, of his creativity, of his zaniness. Think about the aardvark. Think about the giraffe. It's nutty. He's, he's, God's got a sense of humor, right? Um, the bullfrog, the platypus, on I could go. Us, you know. Uh, but special revelation the written word of God, the scriptures, tell us a special 
thing about God, and that is that he loves us so much that he did what was unthinkable. He came and became one of us and lived the life that we should live before God and died the death that we deserve in our place to bring us back to God. And that's what, at the transition between the general revelation, the creation, it speaks of the wonders of God. And then at the transition where it goes from that to, but there's something else that speaks even more of his wonder, and that is the scriptures. Okay, at the, the first verse of the transition, Psalm 19:7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's the English translation. The Hebrew is the word shuv, reviving. It means to return. The word, it's a simple word. There's not a lot of semantic range in the word. It simply means to return. The law of the Lord, his revelation to us is perfect or complete or blameless. And what does it do? It returns us, which begs the question, from where? We all are far from home in and of ourselves far from home. And you might, we might not know that, but there's a sense of, I've mentioned it before, of ennui, of angst, of unrest, which drives us to hide from others, to hide from ourselves, to go after things that we're not made for, to stuff our faces with our souls, really, is what I mean, with all sorts of things that we think and we hope might fill us and give us identity. It's because we are far from home. But God, through his word and through his gospel and through his son, because his son is his word consummate, his son tells us exactly what he's like and exactly how much he loves us. Through his son, he returns us home to the home that we were made for, to the, to the, to the maker of our souls, to our father. Um, and so our mission is not, let me, let me just, take a second under this made for mission um, point to say just a bit about what our mission is not as a people of God. Our mission is not to tell the world what's wrong with it. Our, let, me just, let me just break that down even more simply. Our mission is not to do this. I can almost see some pastors, and I'm not, hey, I'm guilty. I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions and sitting up here like I'm something. I'm not. I'm talking to me. I've, I can almost see some Christians, let's just say, and I've done it, uh, as they're talking about the world doing this with their finger. Sometimes it almost happens, but you can almost see that is not the ministry of reconciliation we are called to. That is not the message of the gospel that says, you are far from home. Return. He has done everything necessary for you to come home. In fact, he has gone out to get you at ultimate cost to himself. The, the message of the gospel is not this. That's what's wrong with the world. You are bad on you. Bad, bad, bad. That is not, it's the, it's the opposite of that. If we're looking at finger pointing, it's instead this, this, this. Like G.K. Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world? Dear sirs, in his response to the London Times 100 years ago, dear sirs, in your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. In answer to your question, what is wrong with the world? I am. Two words. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That is the gospel. The finger points here, and then it points up. And then it points down because he came down to save us. Went to the lowest place. Went to the lowest place to get us back, to rescue us. Um, so Brent Hansen, in his, in his wonderful book, Unoffendable, 
He, he has in the middle of the book a litany. It takes up a page and a half of bullet points of things that he's the son of a pastor. He's lived a squeaky clean life, as it were, if we can use that. And he says, man, let me just give you a list of let me, uh, things that I've not done or done. Most of them are not done. I haven't ever cussed. I've, I'm, you know, I've, uh, I've never, I didn't drink till I was 21, till I was of age. I, uh, I didn't have sex till I was married. And on and on and on, a bunch of no's, you know, all these things I haven't done. And it's just, it's amazing. It's sweet. I've, you know. And he goes, by the end of it, you're, you've read for a page and a half, and he goes, I have one question for you. How do you like me now? How do you like me now? That is what we often try to do is like, well, I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and look at you, world. Look at you, sir. Look at you, ma'am. That is not winsome. That is not the ministry of reconciliation. That does not pull people into the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Um, It's quite the opposite, and let me tell you how. The end of the book of John, it's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. If If you're looking for something to do this afternoon, on the Lord's Day, just treat yourself to 10 minutes in John 21. It's the last chapter of the book. Some of us are in a Bible study in John, and so we'll get there eventually together. But um, at the end, Peter, one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 close apostles to, to Jesus, has boasted about how he will never leave Jesus He is impulsive. He is he's braggadocio in him. I can very much relate to Peter. He's a, and so... Before Christ was crucified, he said, man, I want to I be with you, I love you, and I believe he did love, but he was looking to his own strength and his own record to, to be one of Jesus' own. However, Christ was crucified, and before he was crucified, he said, Peter, you will deny me before the rooster crows three times. You will deny you ever, and you'll curse, essentially curse my name and say you never knew me in order to save your skin. Peter says, I will never. It's exactly what Peter does. We have historical record of it. And he does it by a coal fire, warming his hands in the very cold morning where Jesus was tried and then crucified that day on a Friday. Um, Two chapters later, in John 21, at the end of the book, we see Peter again. Christ has risen from the dead. And Peter is fishing in a boat with some of the other apostles. They're They're in this gray space where they hear the Lord is risen, they've seen him, but he's different and this wasn't what they were prepared for, and they have hope but also fear, and so they've just gone back to what they know. They're fishing. They were fishermen, these apostles. And so they're fishing in a boat, and they see someone on the shore, and he calls out to them, and he says, he says throw your net on the other side, and they've been fishing all night, but they do it, and they catch this. They, John actually records it. They catch 153 fish, and they pull the net in, and it almost breaks the boat. And Peter, what does he do? Earlier, earlier, Peter, the same exact scene happens when Jesus first calls his apostles to himself to follow him three years ago. The same thing happens. Cast your net on the other side. We've been fishing all night, but okay, we will. They do it. They catch a huge haul, and, G- and Peter realizes whoever this is, he's, he's something more than a man. And so his response is, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinner. On the contrary, this side of his denial and this side of the cross and resurrection, same scene, what does Peter do? He has just denied his master three times. He says, John says to him, it's the Lord. He puts on his coat. They're fishing. They strip down for work. He puts his coat on and jumps into the water. The only reason that would be included in the narrative is that it happened. You don't put your coat on in a story and jump into the water. 
One of my professors says, why did he do that? He was going to a meeting. He knew that what it might be painful, it might hurt, there was going to be a reckoning perhaps, but he knew that his only good was to be near his Savior, the one who died for him, though he denied him. And what happens in that exchange is he swims to shore, gets there before the other disciples, sits on the shore, and what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? He's cooking fish for the disciples on a coal fire. It's the only other time in the gospel that the word coal is used. It's purposefully connecting the two. You who denied me, look what I'm doing for you now. I could melt your face off. I could send you to hell. But I died in your place so that you might know me. And so that you might know that the very, the only foundation stone to stand on is that you have nothing to do with your own salvation. It's not about your own behavior. You denied me, and that's okay. I love you anyway, and I've come after you again. And I'm making you a meal, and I've made for you to sup with me, to eat with me, and to tell people about what I've done for free. I'm the foundation stone. You're not. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. And he asks Peter as if to drive the nail in, Three times, Peter, do you love me? Just like the three times Peter denied him. And Peter gets it. Peter gets it. And what is, what is, Peter says, yes, I love you, Lord, but basically, yes, I know that you're basically making me face my sin. What we have to do to come to God, I'm a sinner. Yes, this is what I've done, I've denied you. Yes, but still you love me, and still you died for me. It's because of that that you died for me. What is Jesus' response to him? Yes, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. He commissions Peter. Peter, you weren't ready for ministry. You weren't ready to tend my flock. You weren't ready to be a minister of reconciliation because you know what? You had this list of things that, that, you, that made you qualified in and of yourself, but now you realize what is your qualification that you've denied me three times. Now you know that it's the, it's the one who knows his sin and his unworthiness the most, that is the most qualified to be a minister of reconciliation. Because what do you do? Come on, guys, amazing news. I'm gonna tell you about a dude that told me everything I have ever done. I know what a wretch I was and am. But Christ has come to me and offered me his righteousness in my place. Received by faith. It's not just his death that he died in our place. It's his life that he lived, his life of obedience to the Father. Faith grabs a hold of all that. And that is what we proclaim. That is what we proclaim. And what does Paul say about that? He says in this text, he says, look, our salvation and our proclamation, what we appeal to you, what we entreat you to do, and that's a prep for the last point, which is sort of how does this look on Monday? Um, what we entreat for you to do is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to say it's, it is about what he has done for us through no good of our own. That's the gospel. And I am, the more I realize what a wretch I am in and of my own record, the more prepared I am to be a minister of the gospel because I can just point people to Jesus and say, he qualifies us. He has everything we need. He lived the life in our place. He died the death in our place and he's risen to a totally new life. And that's who represents us now, the risen Christ, the one who buried death, who paid for hell, who paid for sin, 
Those are no longer issues for us through no good of our own. But that is not the only part, Paul says, of the message. The entire message is one of new creation. Get this, and then we finish with point three. The, the message is, is the fact that the gospel is not just about my own salvation. It is about that. <laughs> but it's so much more. It's about his renewal of the entire creation, and we get to be part of that. We, in being ministers of reconciliation, we get to see people come home to God through the offer of Jesus Christ, and then that kingdom that grows in them, that new life that grows in them, spreads out on, in whatever they touch. So we aren't just about personal salvation. We are about being re- reconciled to God and then seeing creational and cultural and city and country and global renewal. Yes, we are. That is what the kingdom of God means. It means being healed from the inside out. It means physical healing. It means spiritual healing. It means the poor raised up. It means the proud laid low. It means all these things and more. Um, And so what is our mission? I had a pastor once say to us, a group of pastors, he said, drive a knife deep in the heart of missions with an S with your people. Because a lot of times when we think, okay, mission or missions, what we think is a missions trip. Two weeks a year, somewhere else that has really no relation to where I am now. And then I go and do it, and it's good. It is good. It is good. But then I go and I do it, and I kind of come home, and I check the box, and then I go about my life as it is. He said, rather, drive a knife deep in the heart of missions with an S. Rather, get mission in front of your people. Because as ministers of reconciliation, we are to be a people constantly in whatever sphere on mission. There was a 19th century, 19th, 20th century Dutch politician, theologian, who said that um, there is not one single square inch of creation over which Christ does not say the word mine. Mine. All that is not sin is sacred, friends. Your work, changing baby diapers, Neighborhood Bible studies, shopping, everything. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to God's glory. It's a new creation. Take you to Matthew 28, the the passage I taught last week, and then finish with some application, two, two points of application. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We talked about the church and then the church's mission last week. And what does Jesus say? He gives us this commission. My people, I'm giving you a commission to go make disciples. Go make disciples. Not see people saved and then move on. Make disciples who follow me, whom I've made to be with me, to know me. But what does he say before that? We focused on it last week. He doesn't just give us the job. He says this. He says, all authority has been given me, right? Here's the question that I didn't hit on. Um, I didn't hit on last week, okay? Um, I... uh, I did not hit on the fact, and I'm glad that I have the chance to do it now, that here's the question. Didn't Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, have all authority as God and as God's Son before then, before he came to earth to save us, before he became a man? And the answer is yes, he did. But that's only part of the answer. He did as God, but not as man. 
You see, he became a man at a point in time 2,000 years ago, in about 3 or 6 BCE, as far as we can tell, okay? Um, and he lived a life of about between 33 and 36 years, and he died on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. Even for an atheist, this is indisputable. The historical Jesus of Nazareth lived and died. The question that you have to ask yourself is, does the evidence sustain the idea that he rose? And I believe it does. Um, but as a man, he, he did not previously have all authority. Adam had it, and Adam was given charge of all creation with Eve. And they disobeyed. They walked away from God. They went their own way, and they lost it. And because they lost that uh, relationship with God, everything under their charge cracked. Jesus, as the second Adam, comes along, untainted by sin, and he buries that rebellion, and he leaves it in the ground. And he rises to a new type of life, friends, impervious, unable to sin, impervious to death, impervious to hell, as the second Adam who also represents a new race of men and women, anyone who will come to him by faith and say, yeah, you died for me, yeah, you live for me, yeah, I look at your cross and realize you took what I deserve, I believe. You are then born again, given his spirit and made alive, whereas before you were dead. You are part of a new order that will never end, okay? And as the God-man, as a man, as the second Adam, Jesus says, I have been given all authority. It's our inheritance, friends. And so that leads us to the last point. What does it look like on Monday? It looks like speaking the gospel. It looks like entreating. It looks like making an appeal that he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. He didn't just bear your sin if you trust in him. He became your sin. Everything that you feel and that embodies you and takes you over and creeps into your soul, and that weaves itself into the fabric of your being as you sin and rebel against God. He became. He became repulsive to his father. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. It's the great exchange, what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the great exchange. We are not only forgiven of sin and cleansed because he paid that price for us. We are also made righteous. We are given his perfect obedience from the heart to his father. And then that works itself out through faith, through us over the course of our lives. And we are part of this new creation. So what does this look like? It looks like we, like Paul, become ministers who appeal and proclaim and become ambassadors for Christ, just begging people, yes, with words, articulating the gospel like I have just done. Not have to take 30 minutes. It could be 15 seconds. But saying, look, creation, we were made for him. Decreation, we fell and we have this sense that something is wrong. But guess what? He came when the law had imprisoned us and he kept the law and then he died the death of a sinner in your place and mine. And he has risen from the dead and he started a new creation. And he's going to come again and he's going to finish what he started. And then the party's really going to start. That's, that's the full creational gospel. Yes, we're called to articulate it. We're called to speak it. But finally, we're also called, we're also called to suffer. And that's really all throughout chapters 4 and 6 on either side of this. But, and I'll leave you with this. Um, the power of the resurrection of the risen Jesus Christ. Paul says this clearly in Romans, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. His resurrection power basically comes about one way, through our suffering. Because he was only resurrected after he died on a cross. 
Okay, so the cross comes before the crown. In other words, through our suffering, our suffering is not something as believers, as new creations, to, to, to work around, to get around. It's not something to be sought because suffering is an evil and it will be finished. It will be done away with someday when he returns. But it's a tool, it's a lathe, it's pruning shears that God uses as we walk, not around it, but through it, knowing he's with us to make us more like him. And through that suffering, his resurrection power bursts forth. We are sanctified, people are saved, and new creation rolls out from us. You see? Do you see what he's done? We literally have nothing to fear, not suffering, not death. Hate sin, but don't fear it. He's paid the price for it. There is no, no more guilt remains. Only sorrow over sin, repentance, and fleeing back to Jesus. Put on your coat and jump in the water, like Peter. Um, and so this is what it looks like on, uh, on a Monday um, and, and for the rest of our lives. People on mission who embrace suffering knowing that he is with us and he's using it, who articulate the gospel and who say, look, I don't deserve it at all. I am well acquainted with how much I don't deserve it, and that's the gospel, that though I don't deserve it, he came and died for me. He ran out to meet me. He threw his arms around my shoulder, and he said, kill the fattened calf, let's have a party. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. So the more you know that you're a sinner, friend, come on home. That is our message that we proclaim. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that we, <laughs> we can be so far from board in this super- bored culture. Um, we are, you've called us to be remade and to be ministers of reconciliation. Um, we have been called back home through Jesus Christ through no good of our own. So I pray that you would continue. We, we're seeing this mission go forth. We're seeing this new creation go forth. I pray that you would just continue to work that in us and through us and to save people and to change people, to bring them to you and to renew this culture and then to speed your return, Lord. We pray it for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Make us a people on mission. Amen.